Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 16th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardow, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week, our guests chat two vital cases, one that deepens a federal circuit split over employment class action waivers, and one that will refine the president's power to fill vacant executive posts. We'll first hear from Laura Rutherford, a partner with Venable LLP, on the recent Ninth Circuit ruling in Morris v. Ernst & Young, an employment law matter, the impact of which doubtless concerns employers and their counsel across California, as it's holding that mandatory class action waivers in employment contracts are unenforceable as in violation of the National Labor Relations Act, stands in direct contradiction to settled California state law from the divisive 2014 decision in Escanian v. CLS Transportation. The ruling deepens a federal circuit split, the Ninth Circuit joins the Seventh as holding such waivers violate the NLRA, while other circuits, the Fifth, Second, and Eighth, have held differently, making eventual U.S. Supreme Court review nearly certain. Miss Rutherford will portend the future of class action waivers and analyze this ruling's impact on California employment lawyers. Then, Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, will conclude our summer SCOTUS series today previewing the case of NLRB for Southwest General a battle between the executive and legislative branches over the proper interpretation of a statute defining the president's power to fill vacant executive positions. With a strict interpretation of the statute at issue, the D.C. Circuit rendered invalid President Obama's 2010 appointment of Leif Solomon as National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, and along with that appointment also rendered invalid an NLRB complaint against the respondents. More than just the NLRB complaint at issue here, the outcome in this case will have significant impacts on just how much latitude the president has over appointments within the executive branch. But before we get to my guests, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into the program. There should be a link to a short true-false test at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And with that, let's hear from Laura Rutherford. We're happy to welcome to the program now Ms. Laura Rutherford, a partner with Venable, LLP, uh, who works in the firm's labor and employment practice, focusing on management side employment litigation and collective and class actions. Ms. Rutherford also is a co-editor of the Class Action Perspectives for Employers, a blog providing commentary on recent labor and employment class action legal developments. Ms. Rutherford, thanks for being on the program. It's great to be here. Thanks, Brian. So we're talking about Morris first, Ernst & Young, here today, a case that was filed out of the Ninth Circuit towards the end of August, but one, the impact of which I'm sure is still sort of trying to be discerned by employment lawyers in, in California and within the entire Ninth Circuit, maybe starting broadly, it seems like a pretty fascinating and perhaps somewhat contradictory development in the ever-evolving area of arbitration agreements and, and class action waivers. Tell me a bit about it. Yeah, no, you're right, Brian. Um, especially now in California, this decision definitely is confusing for employers because uh, the Ninth Circuit has held that uh, if an employer includes a class action waiver in an arbitration agreement, and that agreement is signed by an employee as a condition of employment, that the waiver is unenforceable and the employee can still sue on behalf of a class or bring a collective action and basically ignore the waiver. California State Supreme Court, however, uh, has held the opposite uh, in a different case called Escanian versus CLS Transportation. Uh, and that case specifically held that those waivers were enforceable. Um, and in particular here, the issue is identical. The Ninth Circuit has held that the waiver 
violates an employee's right to engage in concerted activity under the National Labor Relations Act, whereas the California Supreme Court in Ascanian held that that waiver specifically does not violate the NLRA. So a little confusing for employers, but looks like Ernst & Young and the case out of the, the employer in the Seventh Circuit, Epic Systems, they've both asked the United States Supreme Court for review. So Hopefully we'll get more clarity (laughs) in the future, you know, in the next year or so. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit more detail with that conflicting precedent and some of the other federal circuits. But first, let's start from the beginning here. Can you tell me a bit about the nature of the arbitration agreement that was signed by the the employee plaintiffs here, employees of Ernst & Young? Sure. Uh, The employees in Ernst & Young signed an arbitration agreement that required them to resolve all of their legal claims separately, basically in separate proceedings as individuals. It was made a condition of employment uh, that employees signed that agreement. So as we'll probably talk about in just a couple of minutes, there was no alternative for an employee to to opt out of that, that arbitration clause. Right. That's my understanding. Okay. So then these employees bring suit in federal district court and were compelled, per the terms of that arbitration agreement, to to individually arbitrate rather than bring their, their class action uh, collectively. And they appealed that district ruling to the Ninth Circuit as being in violation of Sections 7 and 8 of the, the National Labor Relations Act, which you mentioned. What specifically do those sections provide for? Section 7 of the NLRA gives employees the right to engage in concerted activity to change the terms and conditions of their employment or to discuss the terms and conditions of their employment with their employment. Concerted activity, generally speaking, means the opportunity to talk to one another, to band together, to address you know, terms and conditions of their collective employment or their, their general employment. Section 8 makes it unlawful for an employer to interfere with the right of employees to engage in concerted activity. The specific challenge, this NLRA-based challenge to, to arbitration agreements, has been ruled upon by, by different federal district courts and different federal circuit courts, indeed. Um, some of those rulings conflict with, with each other. Could you tell me how some of the federal circuits have, have found on this question recently? The Fifth Circuit twice has held that our uh, class action waivers in arbitration agreements, so specifically you know, employees who say we will not bring a class action and we will not bring a collective action, that type of waiver has been upheld as lawful in the in the Fifth Circuit and, and to some degree in the Second Circuit in a footnote case. In uh, the Ninth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit, or let's start with the Seventh Circuit and now the Ninth Circuit, those circuits have held that those waivers are unenforceable because they violate the concerted activity provision of the NLRA. Can you walk me a bit perhaps more through the Seventh Circuit's reasoning? I believe it's the reasoning that the Ninth Circuit employed as well, specifically the fact that there's another federal statute out there, the Federal Arbitration Act, that tends to favor arbitration in in most cases. Yeah. So the way this works is that the first challenge to the arbitration provision is, is the argument that the agreement or the waiver violates the right to engage in concerted activity. And the employers argue that the Federal Arbitration Act specifically allows employers and employees to sign arbitration agreements, and the terms of those agreements should be given full force and effect, except if a provision is illegal. Because as I'm sure you and your listeners know, contracts that are illegal are unenforceable. 
So the Seventh Circuit said that an arbitration waiver, because it violates Section 7, it is illegal. And being illegal, that means it cannot be saved by the the Federal uh, Arbitration Act and, in fact, is unenforceable under the, uh, the Federal Arbitration Act. So that that was really its basis for finding that the arbitration provision was unenforceable in that agreement. So in circumstances where the the agreement, the mandatory class action waiver conflicts with with the federal statute, then it sort of doesn't matter that the Federal Arbitration Act generally favors arbitration. Right. Basically, an arbitration agreement will not be valid under the FAA if it's illegal, and the agreement will only be saved if it's if it's valid, if it's not conflicting with another law. Um, so here, as you've mentioned, the Ninth Circuit joins with the Seventh Circuit as now the Second Circuit to hold this type uh, of waiver unenforceable. What was the reasoning of the majority here, the two-to-one uh, panel majority? Here, it was really the fact that Ernst & Young's agreement used the, the term separate proceedings. According to the Ninth Circuit, requiring employees to engage in separate litigation interfered with their Section 7 right to engage in concerted activity. Presumably, if the agreement said you could go to arbitration collectively, then the court might have been okay with it. But it was really this separate proceedings language that the court had a problem with. So like you say, it's not necessarily a question of whether or not the employees can bring suit in court or whether they have to arbitrate. It's just there has to be some alternative for them to do either one of them together. Exactly. I mean, now like the Seventh Circuit, the Ninth Circuit panel dealt with the Federal Arbitration Act and how it interplays with the NLRA, um, and they dealt with the, the savings clause. And they also seem to spend a bit of time on differentiating between substantive and procedural rights provided people, you know, by different federal statutes. What um, What's the distinction there and why is it important for this analysis? This is actually the, the crux of the whole argument and really, in my opinion, where the court is wrong. <laughs> um, what the court has done is suggested that because Section 7 concerted activity rights are substantive, so, you know, you have a right for an employer to follow the law, you have the right to engage in, in collective activity, that, that's absolutely true under the NLRA. However, there's law on the other side that says that there is no substantive right to engage in a class action. The class action mechanism is simply a court procedural rule. It is not a right. Employees do not have a right to bring a class action in federal court or, or any state court. And the reason the procedural rules exist is because the courts are trying to manage their dockets, trying to employ more efficient procedures in court to make litigation expeditious. So class actions are at times more a more efficient way of litigating because perhaps several people have the same claim and if the court can answer the liability question of those claims in one proceeding as opposed to 10 separate proceedings, then the court will say to itself, okay, this particular action is ripe for class treatment. That is different than a right under Section 7 to talk with one another about your wages and working conditions and whether or not there's an employment rule that is is unfair to employees and, and it needs to be addressed by a group of employees. In my opinion, the Ninth Circuit has 
conflated the notion of joining together and talking with one another as concerted activity and conflated that idea with a class action procedural device, which is simply, like I said, a rule of procedure. There's no substantive rights there. But the Ninth Circuit has said that because class action involves working together, that somehow that equals concerted activity. And now a class action somehow falls under Section 7. I disagree. And certainly the the dissent here, Judge Akuda, is on your side. Uh, she disagrees with the majority ruling as well. Can you tell me about the reasoning behind her dissent? She mentioned that the court is to look for a, a contrary congressional command before finding that one federal statute might trump another here, the NLRA trumping the, the Federal Arbitration Act. What, what did she mean by that? What's a contrary congressional command? So when Congress enacts legislation, you know, it decides what types of terms and provisions to put in that legislation. One term, knowing full well, right, that the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act, exists, Congress can say in other pieces of legislation that the claims as set forth in this statute shall not be governed by the FAA or shall not be subject to arbitration. Congress can spell out its intent that these rights shall not be enforced in arbitration. And then the courts and the litigants are clear. Okay, if if I want to raise a claim under Statute X, if Statute X says you're not allowed to arbitrate those claims, all right, we know those claims are not subject to arbitration. But Congress knows that the FAA exists, and so it knows it can put that language in the, in other pieces of legislation. And Judge Takuda pointed out, she gave some examples of statute where the Congress did just that. Here, there's no specific intent that the claims under the FLSA in Morris be excluded for arbitration, and therefore the court was required and sh- or should have acknowledged that there was no congressional intent to exclude arbitration, and therefore should have enforced the arbitration provision unless there was actual, you know, actually some illegality, which you know I disagree there was here. But you know th- they should have followed the FAA in this instance, and that's what she's pointing out. She also points out, and I think this is really a key point, that employees can still engage in concerted activity and litigate individually. They can still talk with one another. They can talk about their claims. They can, you know, strategize together. They can still work together and yet still proceed in individual litigation. And I think that that's important as well. So in her opinion and and yours, um, employees could maintain that right to collective action to working together, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're entitled to file class actions. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I think the majority addressed her point as to the congressional command. What was their resolution to that point? Well, I think they said you don't need to get there because here, if they just said, look, the, this provision's illegal. We're done. Judge Akuda also mentioned some United States Supreme Court precedent from recent years um, that's tended to favor arbitration, though I, I believe in context that might not have specifically mentioned the NLRA. Is that why those holdings of the Concepcion Italian colors were not controlling in this, this case? It's hard to tell what the justices were actually thinking, of course. But um, yeah, I think that the Supreme Court in particular really does try to apply precedent, um, you know, conservatively and, and cite cases that are directly on point. So here, I'm, you know, that perhaps the majority was thinking that, you know, it would narrow its analysis to just an analysis of the NLRA. And that doesn't mean that Justice Sakuda's analysis is wrong. I think that 
you know, her analysis runs a little deeper because she does go through and anticipates what the, the Supreme Court might do in this situation by acknowledging that the most recent decisions have favored arbitration and, and do require some specific exclusion of arbitration from the statute at issue in order to render an arbitration agreement unenforceable. Speaking of cases being on all fours with one another, you mentioned the California Supreme Court case in Ascani, and of course, the California Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals are different jurisdictions, but they address basically the exact same question in these two yeah. cases, right? So this agreement would have passed muster based on the California Supreme Court standard, correct? Correct. I believe so. And I think that the Iskanian analysis is very similar to Justice Ikuda's analysis, you know, in particular, that, that finding that employees can still join together in other ways and engage in concerted activity and still proceed in litigation separately. Now, as you mentioned, this ruling deepens the circuits, but there's a couple of circuits now on, on this side of the question and at least a couple on the other side. How likely do you think the United States Supreme Court will be um, to take up this question? I think it's very likely. This is an important issue. It has gotten a lot of attention. And as we see now in California, it's now confusing for employers. What are they What are they going to do? Speaking of confusion, I mean, it, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how the makeup of this court might look within a few months from now. It seems like if you're an attorney on either side of this question, you can't be particularly confident as to which way mm-hmm. uh, the country's high court might come down. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the uh, Concepcion case was very close. You know, it was a 5-4 decision, and one of the justices in favor of arbitration is no longer on the court, as I'm sure you know. Um, Those same four justices wrote Italian colors. Interestingly, Sotomayor didn't participate in the Italian colors decision, so I wonder if that means she's on the fence. And then, you know, whoever's added to the court, it it remains to be seen whether that person will have any particular influence or whether that person will switch the thinking to five against arbitration and four (laughs) in favor. So, no, I I 100% agree with you. There's no easy answer. But, you know, the decision to take up the question, you know, really rises and falls on the fact that we do not have uncertainty now. And that's typically why the Supreme Court decides to take up decisions. For now, let's let's assume that, say, this, this law remains good law in the Ninth Circuit for the foreseeable future. How vulnerable do you think employers in California should feel to, to arbitration contracts and their agreements being rendered unenforceable, especially considering they probably thought that you know, after Iskanian, these sorts of clauses would be, would be A-OK? Right. No, it's an excellent question. Um, and, you know, it's a question I face regularly. <laughs> I think that there's um, a feeling from some plaintiff's lawyers that if they're in federal court, that the employer's arbitration agreements will be uh, overruled. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Um, you know, I think that if employers do provide for uh you know, a conditional opt-out. So you give employees the opportunity to not sign it. I think that that can look a little better for an employer. It doesn't mean they have to do that, but I think that that might even help them in federal court, just based on some of the language out of the Seventh Circuit, uh, Circuit's decision in the Lewis case. But and then I think, of course, if you're in state court, you, know, you probably have a strong chance that your arbitration agreement will be upheld, at least, you know, assuming that there's no other terms that make it legal. So, yeah, it's uncertain, but I'm not sure employers should feel vulnerable per se. I would still encourage employers who want to rely on class action waivers to put them in their agreements and uh, because the law has is not settled, right? And so a lot of things can happen between now and when the Supreme Court of the United States decides the question. 
So perhaps that could be one of the, the biggest takeaways from this ruling that uh, opt-out provisions could be useful. Is, are there any other takeaways for, for employment lawyers within California to, to keep in mind? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's not over yet. Is it really the fact, you know, the factor? And I think even though this Ninth Circuit has addressed the issue, um, employers can ask the courts to stay determination of the enforceability question pending the outcome of the Supreme Court ruling, assuming the, it, you know, the court does agree to take it up. Um, I'd say by no means should employers feel like this issue has completely been resolved because it, it just hasn't. And if, if employers feel strongly about using arbitration agreements, I think they should continue to do so until the Supreme Court has addressed the question. Well, I guess we'll leave it there for now and continue to uh, to look forward to that eventual resolution that I'm, I'm sure will come at some point. Ms. Laura Rutherford from Venable LLP, thanks very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Once more, there was Laura Rutherford, partner with Venable LLP, in the case of Morris versus Ernst & Young. We'll move now to my discussion with Ben Foyer. We're very pleased to be joined now once again by Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a boutique appellate law firm in San Francisco comprising about 10 attorneys. Ben's a a very wonderful guest to have on for previewing appellate law cases as he's devoted his entire career to appellate law. He serves as lead appellate counsel in all types of California and federal appeals and writs. Earlier in his career, he also served as a clerk for Judge Carlos Bea, on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Ben's the founder and longtime chair of the appellate section of the Bar Association of San Francisco's Barristers Club. And in 2013, that association awarded him with the Outstanding Barristers Award, an award given to one attorney each year. Not least of all, he contributes regularly to the Daily Journal, both singly himself and with other members of his firm under the Appalachian Appellate Zealots. Mr. Ford, thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you so much, Brian. We're chatting today about the case of NLRB for Southwest General, and, and broadly speaking, this seems to be a dispute between the executive and, and legislative branches over presidential power to appoint, and specifically uh, the statutory interpretation of the statute that controls that power, the uh, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Is that generally the, the broad strokes here? Yeah. The issue here is the scope of the president's power to appoint individuals to head up administrative agencies when there's a vacancy at the head of the administrative agency. And Congress, specifically the Senate, has either chosen to take its time or is in a recess and can confirm somebody right away. In a way, it deals with a basic constitutional power. The Constitution gives the president the authority to, as the Constitution puts it, fill up vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting the ability for someone to serve in a role that would otherwise need to be confirmed by the Senate, but only until the end of the next session of the Senate. The reason this is such a big deal combines a number of separate issues that are happening in the cultural context at the moment, as well as the way the nation has developed since World War II. And the issues are, one, the administrative state that the federal government essentially operates as, that really wasn't very seriously expected by the founders, 
but has grown up within the constitutional construct. And for the most part, the Constitution seems to work within the administrative state, where, where you have a very expansive federal government, many agencies that operate constantly and that the public in many ways relies on to go about its, its day-to-day business. And the issue with administrative agencies, of course, is that uh, if there's no one to run the agency, you start to have all kinds of problems. Agency could fall apart. And, you know, just like any agency um, and any business, someone's got to run the show. So if there's a vacancy, how is, how is that going to get filled? This issue has run up against the political paralysis and division that has captured the nation's capital, in particular Congress, since the mid-1990s, when political perspectives became much more polarized. And Congress reacted, especially during the Obama administration, by simply refusing to appoint people to positions that the president would nominate them to. In fact, the Senate, in many cases, refused even to hold hearings on the president's nominees. This is something that we, of course, see today with the nomination of Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court, a nomination for which Judge Garland has not received even a hearing in the Senate for the longest period of time in American history. Uh, Another issue is a concept of constitutionalism that reached a new level of interest among serious constitutional lawyers during the George W. Bush administration. And this is the concept of the unitary executive. And the idea here is that the way the Constitution is set up is that the president is alone responsible for the actions of the executive branch. And the president is alone responsible for who serves in the roles of the executive branch, what the various arms of the executive branch do, especially within the president's constitutional authority, and whether Congress can, in fact, limit the power of the president to do things that the Constitution has given him authority or her authority to do, or if the only remedy is essentially impeaching the president or, in some cases, prosecuting individuals who individually act in violation of law. That came up in the Bush administration, especially on issues involving the the war on terror and whether the president could uh, intercept communications, for example, within his authority as commander in chief, even if those interceptions were not authorized by a warrant. Similar question, if there is a, a nuclear bomb that's about to go off somewhere, can the president within his constitutional authority order military officers to torture someone who may know where this bomb is in order to get this information? Or can Congress limit that? The unitary executive theory says that this is a power that belongs to the president. And even if Congress has said you can't torture, even if there may be the constitutional law that says you can't torture uh, in his military role, the president has may have this authority. So this is all part of this idea of the unitary executive and that the president can have control over the executive branch completely, and and that the remedy is essentially a political one. So these broad concepts, the scope of the president's authority to control the executive branch, the partisanship that has in some cases prevented the appointment 
of someone to head up an administrative agency that's within the executive branch have, have come together in this particular case. This vacancies issue has come up before. I don't want to say this is the only case, but it has certainly come together in this case uh, to make the question of a particular person that the president uh, had appointed or tried to appoint to be general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board and what it means that Congress may have laws in place that the, that particular appointment may or may not have complied with. And that's really what this case is ultimately about. Certainly some salient and, and provocative issues intersecting here. Maybe let's tease out one of those a little bit more. You mentioned congressional intransigence in the, the context of presidential appointments over the past several years. Perhaps the most conspicuous uh, of those instances is the, the one you mentioned with Judge Merrick Garland awaiting uh, a hearing for, for several months now. It's interesting. So, you know, this case will be a battle between the executive and the legislature uh, in front of the third branch, the United States Supreme Court, which is currently hamstrung by the fact that um, it only has eight members because Judge Garland has not received a nomination hearing or confirmation. Is there much that can be made of that except other than the fact that it's kind of an interesting coincidence? I mean, to what extent and to what influence could that have in the minds of the justices that hear this case? Yeah, I mean, I think that the answer in a way is yes and no. That is, the justices who hear this case are going to be focused on, uh, as we'll explain, the way this particular vacancies statute works and what that means. But at the same time, they also understand the broader context and the broader question that is in play. They understand the background issues that underscore the litigation. So the question, remember, in this case, is what the president's power is to make appointments during Senate recesses. And previous Supreme Court cases, recent Supreme Court case a few years ago, actually also involving the National Labor Relations Board, defined what a recess is and essentially said that the Senate has a lot of control over when it's in recess and when it isn't. But assuming the Senate is in recess, the question here is, who can the president put uh, in place to head up an administrative agency? Now, the Supreme Court is not an administrative agency, so the, the specific statute that's going to be discussed in this case isn't really going to be critical in any way in the appointment that is eventually made to the Supreme Court. But it does raise the interesting question, you know, do, does the president have the authority to make a recess appointment to the United States Supreme Court? He does is the answer to that question. The last justice who was appointed as a recess appointment, uh, William Brennan, actually was appointed by President Eisenhower shortly before uh, an election when there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Some think that the appointment at that time was for political reasons. The Senate had gone into recess to, to go campaign, and Eisenhower was hoping to get votes of Roman Catholics in the Northeast, and Brennan was a Roman Catholic. But Eisenhower appointed Brennan to the court, and then after the election, he re-nominated him to the Senate, and the Senate eventually confirmed Brennan to the court. So there wasn't really a crisis because Eisenhower won, and there probably wouldn't have been a crisis even if Eisenhower had lost, that is, Brennan's very brief term on the court would expire at the end of the next Senate session, and the new president would appoint somebody else. So conceivably... 
President Obama could appoint Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court as a recess appointment if the Senate goes into recess, uh, which it frequently does around election time. Although, you know, there are ways that that if the Republican leadership is concerned that the president might do this, uh, they could try to keep the Senate formally in session to prevent the president from making a recess appointment. But assuming the Senate um, uh, does go into recess, the president would have a, a choice to make, the possibility at least, of making a, a recess appointment to the Supreme Court. There would be uh, significant political uh, issues if the president did so, even if a, a different party's president wins in the election and, and wants to nominate someone else. Certainly the very strange and difficult question to think about, one that would very likely precipitate a constitutional crisis, at least at a, at a political level, is the possibility that the forthcoming election would have some kind of very close result as occurred in the 2000 election that came down in some way to litigation before the U.S. Supreme Court. And if the Senate were in recess at the time that this litigation was fomenting, if the president appointed a justice he favored, who then voted in such a way in a 5-4 in a split to come out in the direction the president favored, and that decided who the next president would be, conceivably you would have an even greater political constitutional crisis than occurred in 2000. Um, so it is an interesting question. Not to go off on too much of a tangent, that question may be in the back of the minds of the justices as they decide this case, but probably won't be in the front of the minds of the justices. This case is probably going to be ultimately about the statute itself. Well, then let's, uh, let's get into that statute a little bit more specifically. It pertains with the president's ability to appoint folks to positions and agencies within the executive branch, and specifically it's the, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Could you give me a bit more information as to when this act was passed and what exactly it prescribes and, and proscribes? Well, Congress has been passing laws in, in one way or another, at least control the process of appointments uh, to vacancies for hundreds of years. But for the most part, they were pretty broad and essentially placed in statute form what the Constitution says, the president shall have authority to appoint uh, individuals until the end of the next Senate term uh, if the Senate is in recess and there's a vacancy. Um, in the early 1970s, during the Nixon administration, there began to appear cracks and problems in the administrative functioning of various administrative aspects of government that related to the president's personal scandals and political situation. And specifically, uh, what some of our listeners will recognize as the Saturday Night Massacre in October 1973, when President Nixon essentially fired a number of his top cabinet officers and heads of administrative agencies uh, and replaced them with, in some cases, individuals who were perceived to be personally loyal to the president. These were folks who um, had not been confirmed by the Senate, but there were these vacancies. The Senate hadn't acted. And one of the individuals that the president uh, appointed uh, was an acting director of the FBI, uh, who, who served as acting director for two months or so until um, ultimately Nixon uh, resigned. After Nixon left office, Congress wanted to limit the ability of the president to do things like this to appoint whoever 
uh, he or she wanted to head up administrative agencies. So Congress passed the Vacancies Act. And this act put some limitations on who the president could appoint and when uh, to a vacancy. But no one really followed it. Presidents kind of just appointed whoever they wanted anyway. And in the 1990s, with the election of 1994, I think many political scientists uh, start to see substantially increasing uh, polarization um, in the United States on either side. And there was some tremendous uh, discord between President Bill Clinton and uh, the Republican-led Congress. And in 1998, President Clinton wanted to appoint a man named Bill Lee to head the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. And Congress refused to approve his nomination. So President Clinton appointed him to the role of first assistant at the Civil Rights uh, Division of the Department of Justice. Because there was no assistant attorney general heading up that division, uh, this guy, Bill Lee, took on that role because he was the next most senior person in the role. And essentially, President Clinton got his nominee into, into the place he wanted him to be in, that is running that department, uh, even though the Senate didn't consent to this fellow actually running the department or running that section of the department. So Congress reacted again to that by passing the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. And that is the law that's at issue in this case. The law is somewhat complicated. The Federal Vacancies Reform Act says, essentially as a default rule, that if there's a vacancy at the head of an executive agency because someone dies or resigns or otherwise leaves and no other person is immediately confirmed by the Senate, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate into that role, generally speaking, the first assistant in that office, the, the second level person at the agency, will temporarily perform the duties and functions of the person who heads up the agency. The law also allows the president a few other ways to have somebody head up an agency if there's a vacancy. One way is by choosing someone who has already been confirmed to a different Senate confirmable position. Another way is to choose somebody who is a senior person in the agency and who has been in that other senior role for at least 90 days. Uh, and the third way is simply someone who has been uh, renominated to the same position and the Senate hasn't acted on it yet. That is somebody who has been confirmed in the past, their term expired, essentially, as happens in certain offices. That all seems pretty straightforward and makes sense. There is a, another subsection to this law that has a little bit strange language. And the language says, quote, notwithstanding the default rule, it, what it actually says is notwithstanding subsection A1, of the statute. But A1 of the statute is this default rule that says the first assistant acts in the capacity of the, the executive officer if there's a vacancy. So it says, notwithstanding subsection A1, a person may not serve as an acting officer for an office if the president nominates him to fill the vacant position permanently 
and he has served in the position of first assistant for less than 90 days. So this provision is the source of all of the issues that are before the U.S. Supreme Court in this case. Ultimately, the question is, does this limitation that says the person who is acting as the head of the agency can't also be nominated to be the head of the agency if he has served in the position of first assistant for less than 90 days, does that apply only to the default rule, that is a situation where the first assistant is acting in the capacity of the head of the office and the president's also nominated the first assistant to actually formally head up the office, does that 90-day requirement apply to that person only? Or does it apply to anyone appointed under any of those other possible ways that the president can put someone in as acting head of an office? That is, a person who already serves in a Senate-confirmed position or a senior officer uh, who has been with the agency for at least 90 days does this other provision essentially say, no, none of those apply unless they've been a first assistant for at least 90 days? And that ultimately is what this case is about and has substantial implications going forward, both for the National Labor Relations Board and for presidential recess appointments generally. Okay, then let's get into this particular appointment at issue, with that context you provided, which of those different categories did this appointment fall into? I believe it occurred in 2010, and it was an appointment made to the the general counsel, as we said, of the, the National Labor Relations Board. That's right. So in 2010, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board resigned. Now, remember where the country was in 2010. That was the birth of the Tea Party movement. So all of a sudden, there was this very significant pressure to resist President Obama in as many ways as possible. So one way that the Republican-controlled Congress attempted to stymie the actions of the National Labor Relations Board was with refusing to hold hearings on or confirm nominations the president made to the National Labor Relations Board itself. That was an issue that the Supreme Court addressed in a case from 2013. But another way that the Senate sought to constrain the National Labor Relations Board and the president generally was by refusing to confirm or even vote on the president's choice to replace the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board who had resigned, a man named Leif Solomon, who had been a lawyer with the NLRB, a senior lawyer with the NLRB for more than 10 years. The president appointed Solomon to the position of acting general counsel under the provision of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, because there was a vacancy when the general counsel resigned, that allows for the president to appoint a senior person who has been in the agency for at least 90 days in the year preceding the vacancy. I mentioned that earlier. This is It's not the first assistant, but it's another senior person in the agency who's been there for a while. So that's the authority under which the president appointed Mr. Solomon. 
The president then also nominated Solomon to serve as the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. The Senate refused to act on the nomination. Eventually, the president withdrew Solomon's nomination, appointed another fellow by the name of Griffin, and Griffin was confirmed. But during that interim period of about two years, Solomon was the acting general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. He was the one who was signing complaints that the NLRB would bring against businesses for violations of the National Labor Relations Act. During the time that Solomon was serving as acting general counsel, the NLRB brought an action, an administrative action, against a company called Southwest General. And the complaint alleged that Southwest General had unlawfully changed the way that it would give bonuses to some of its long-term workers. The administrative law judge found in favor of the government that Southwest General had violated this provision of the National Labor Relations Act. Southwest General appealed to the full National Labor Relations Board, and the board confirmed the administrative law judge's ruling. During this process, Southwest General raised an argument that the complaint signed by Leif Solomon, the acting general counsel, was an invalid complaint because Solomon had been appointed in violation of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. And Southwest General's argument was based entirely on the provision that said, notwithstanding the default rule that the first assistant take over the responsibilities of the executive agent, notwithstanding subsection A1, is how the the statute is worded, a person may not serve as an acting officer for an office under this section if the president nominates him to fill the vacant office permanently and he has served in the position of first assistant for less than 90 days. Southwest General took the position that this provision means that the only people the president is permitted to appoint as an acting officer are individuals who have served as first assistant for more than 90 days, essentially arguing that this provision trumps the other provisions in the law that allow the president to appoint either a senior officer who who has had that role for 90 days or more, as was the, the president's basis for appointing Solomon, or appointing someone who had already served in a different Senate-confirmed position. Southwest General said, no, this provision means that unless you're first assistant for 90 days, you can't be appointed to the role of acting officer and at the same time be nominated for the permanent position. That is the question that is at issue in this case. That is, does the limitation notwithstanding This default rule, you can't serve in both roles unless you were first assistant for 90 days. Does that only apply to appointments that are made under the default rule, that is, first assistants who then become the acting agent, or does it overcome and apply to all of the possible ways the president can appoint someone during a vacancy that that don't include being a first assistant? So so that's the question that's before the Supreme Court. The um, National Labor Relations Board didn't address it. The appeal from that decision is actually directly to the 
circuit court for the District of Columbia Circuit, the D.C. Circuit reversed. It granted the petition for review that Southwest General filed. And it held that, yes, indeed, Solomon's appointment was unlawful under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act because he had not served as the first assistant for more than 90 days, and he had been appointed to the acting position and also nominated to the full position. The D.C. Circuit said that's just prohibited by the statute. The Ninth Circuit, in fact, has also considered uh, uh, the, the question as well and also came out the same way as the D.C. Circuit, essentially said that no matter what these other subsections say, this rule requires the president, if he's going to appoint somebody to to be the acting head of an agency, he can't nominate them to be the that, that person to be the actual head of the agency or unless the person has served specifically as first assistant for 90 days or more. Um, ultimately, the, the the case is really going to be about interpreting what the word notwithstanding subsection A1 means. Because that's the part that comes at the beginning of this sort of requirement. And government has taken the position that both based on the text of the statute and the history of the statute and the purpose of the statute, the restriction that that puts a 90-day period on a first assistant who is also being nominated for to fill a role was designed to ensure that there is some Senate oversight or that long-term government employees are the ones taking over agencies and not outside political hacks or cronies who the president wants to slip in you know, without Senate approval and conceivably indefinitely, giving somebody a position of first assistant who is also awaiting confirmation that may never occur. The Senate may decide not to hold hearings, whatever the Senate may do. If the president can simply appoint someone as first assistant and leave the, um, the, the full position empty, then that kind of undermines the Senate's ability to have a consent role because the president can always get around it. But the government has said here, the issues are very different. You have a long-term 10-year professional civil servant who the president nominated to fill the role. It's not some crony from, you know, outside. Uh, and that the way that statute provision is worded, the fact that it specifically references this subsection A1, the default rule involving first assistance and applies to first assistance, really means that it only applies to situations in which the president has nominated for a, a full confirmation somebody who is the first assistant. And the goal there it makes sense. Other, otherwise, there's no way to ensure that the president doesn't appoint somebody to an office, nominate them for full confirmation, and essentially just let it sit there, allowing the person to act in the role however the president wants while the Senate chooses not to act or uh, potentially refuses to confirm the nominee. So that's the question before the Supreme Court. What does this text mean exactly, and how does it play into the history and purpose of the statute itself? Speaking about the contentions of the government, it sounds like notwithstanding, and there's there's that word again, notwithstanding the, the D.C. Circuit and Ninth Circuit's uh, different holdings on this particular question, it seems like you think there's some weight behind the government's arguments as to why uh, the statute should be read in a way that determines the, the appointment of, of Solomon was, was proper. 
I think here uh, the government has the stronger argument. Um, I think that that's sort of made clear from the text, um, which to me makes more sense read the way the government reads it than the way the D.C. Circuit and the Ninth Circuit read it. I also think that it fits in with the kind of purpose of the statute, which is to ensure that there is uh, some sort of Senate oversight, but still allow the president to make sure there's somebody running these agencies who he or she thinks is the right person to be running these agencies. Certain restrictions, making sure that they're either someone who the Senate's pre-approved or somebody who is you know, really worked in this field for a long time and isn't just a crony, or at least 90 days, and isn't just kind of a suddenly chosen crony. And also, there, there is evidence that at the time the Federal Vacancies Reform Act was enacted, there, there are statements in the congressional record that seem to indicate, at least to me, that Congress understood this restriction would only apply to the so-called default rule, the, the first assistant appointment situation and not 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 all the situations and um you know i i i do think that the that the government has a pretty strong argument uh the fact that the supreme court took the case when there's no circuit split the only circuits that have dealt with the issue are the dc circuit and the ninth circuit and they both come out the same way so the fact that the supreme court took the case suggests that there are at least four justices who have serious concern about the rule as it exists. Of course, the Supreme Court has eight justices, not nine. And because the lower courts have come out in the direction that they did, if the Supreme Court splits 4-4, the lower court decision will be affirmed and the government will essentially lose. The Supreme Court reverses cases it takes about 70% of the time. So it's hard to say what the court will do in any given case, but more often than not, you'd rather not have your decision uh, taken up for Supreme Court review, um, especially if there's no circuit split, than uh, have it taken up for Supreme Court review. Maybe taking a, a bit of a broader look at the implications of the eventual Supreme Court ruling, I imagine that this particular labor action involving Southwest General was not the only one filed by the, the NLRB during the time in question that the D.C. Circuit says that Mr. Solomon was not properly in place as the, the general counsel. Um, assume for a second that the, the Supreme Court affirms this decision either 4-4 or 5-3. Um, would there be a lot of other labor actions that would be, be jeopardized because they were filed during that particular time window? The answer is maybe. Certainly, the one of the first amicus briefs filed in this case was from the AFL-CIO, which is concerned that labor decisions in its favor uh, will be tossed aside. However, the, the, the D.C. Circuit, at least, put some limitation on these, this kind of challenge that suggested may not be quite as expansive uh, in terms of the, the damage done if the Supreme Court either ties or affirms. One is that the D.C. Circuit held that a, a complaint like this from an incorrectly appointed uh, executive officer is automatically void, but only voidable. And that's a big difference because it means that there are a number of legal doctrines that could come into play. One is that uh, harmless error analysis applies. That is, conceivably, this mistake, whatever mistake exists, uh, as a result of Solomon, could be harmless error in the grand scheme of things. 
That said, the D.C. Circuit found that in this case, um, there was not harmless error. But the D.C. Circuit also explained that the problem can be cured completely if a subsequent correctly appointed general counsel ratifies the incorrectly appointed general counsel's decision. They also, the D.C. Circuit also limited the scope of its ruling by explaining quite correctly as a matter of appellate procedure that the only reason Southwest General is able to make this argument here is because they had the foresight to make the argument before the NLRB. Uh, essentially, in, in appellate law terms, they preserved the issue effectively in the lower courts. We don't know if this is something that every business subject to an NLRB action during Solomon's tenure thought to do, but I suspect there are plenty that did not think to do that. Uh, and therefore, if it was, they, they didn't raise it effectively before the NLRB, they wouldn't be able to bring a, a later challenge to uh, the ruling issued against them. So there are some limitations from the D.C. Circuit's opinion on the scope of just how many labor law enforcement actions that the NLRB brought during Solomon's tenure, just how many of those will be subject to a challenge on the basis of his appointment. Certainly, though, this appointments question generally could affect many situations in which the president has or will appoint individuals to serve as the head of an executive agency or, or in a Senate confirmable position if there's a vacancy. There are, are something like a thousand positions in the federal government that fall into the Senate confirmable category. So there are a lot of folks who conceivably could be impacted by this issue. And it comes up in lots of settings. For example, when a new administration takes over, frequently one of the first things that the administration will do is appoint to, at least in a temporary basis, many first assistant type career government workers to fill the roles of political appointees who head up different departments who leave. It happened, actually, this, are, this case has already caused political effects. Uh, in 2015, um, the Senate refused to hold hearings on the nomination of uh, a man named Fanning, who was serving as the, he, he was nominated to be Secretary of the Army, but he was also, he had been appointed by the president to serve as acting secretary of the army while there was a vacancy. And he had not been a first assistant. That was not his job title prior to that. And that was the basis on which the Senate refused to hold hearings on his appointment. And ultimately, Fanning resigned from his position as acting secretary of the army to allow the Senate to consider his nomination to be Secretary of the Army, a process that um, Cannon did take quite some time. And that means that during that interim period, the president doesn't have the ability to appoint the officer he wanted to be or he thought best as Secretary of the Army because that person, had, although he met other criteria, had been a senior officer for uh, a very long time, he wasn't in the in the title of of first assistant uh, for more than 90 days, and therefore uh, the Senate refused to act and um, consequences flowed. Uh, also, there, the um, 
there have been questions raised about the acting head of the Office of Personnel Management, uh, who came to the office in a similar way, and also the, the U.S. EPA administrator, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. So there certainly are ramifications uh, that are already being felt in a very real way from the lower court's rulings, and there certainly will continue to be ramifications uh, depending on how the U.S. Supreme Court rules here. Just one last one for you, then, um, if you had to take a, a best guess as to how this case might come down in, in this upcoming term, what, uh, what would that guess be? That's always a very difficult question. Of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court reverses about 70% of the time when it uh, has granted cert, and in situations where there is no circuit split, um, you kind of know that at least four justices don't like <laughs> the way the lower federal courts have ruled uniformly. But whether we have five justices on board for this idea or not is hard to say. We won't, we won't have a ninth justice of the Supreme Court by the time this case is argued on November 7th. We won't even know the outcome of the November 8th election. Uh, so, we, we won't have, we won't know whether Judge Garland will be the nominee, whether it's going to be someone uh, much more conservative, but it won't matter because if oral argument has already taken place, unless the court decides to recalendar the case for next term, uh, a new justice wouldn't participate in the decision for that case. So this case will be decided with the, the eight member court that we currently have. Um, and I personally think that the government has the better textual argument here. That is, I think the government's interpretation of the statute's text, along with its uh, statutory purpose and the con congressional record, um, make clear, at least to me, uh, that this limitation that is the focus of this case only applies to the first assistants who are being nominated for the full position and are also acting in an acting capacity and have been appointed and, and hadn't worked in the, de the department for more than 90 days. I, I read the statute and I, I think that the government's statutory analysis coming to that conclusion is stronger than the lower court's analysis, uh, bo both lower courts, both the DC Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, their analyses um, in terms of um, wh why that's not the case, why this provision kind of applies no matter what. But it's, but it's uh, um, as always, very hard to predict what the Supreme Court will do. Uh, and, um, you know, with a, as I think I mentioned, with an a eight-member court, the court could very easily split 4-4, not create new precedent going forward, but affirm the lower court's uh, ruling here, uh, and then conceivably revisit the issue uh, if it comes up again or, or at a later date when it has a full, fully composed court. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now and, and wait and see. Uh, I'm certainly an interesting case to, to ruminate on. And uh, Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, thanks for being on the show to talk about it with us. Thanks so much, Brian. Anytime. And with that, our program for September 16, 2016 is complete.
I'd like to take this opportunity once more to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Laura Rutherford, partner with Benemple LLP, and Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. I'd like to also thank members of my production staff here, including Dominic Fracasa, Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nick Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>